welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I'm Joel and this is a podcast for coaches who want to facilitate deep transformational work in their clients, whether that's individuals or groups or organizations. And even for those of you who are just interested in this majestic thing we called the human journey of awakening and transformation. And so in today's podcast, I'm going to be speaking with Deborah Pierce McCall, and we're going to talk about Priscillian Minds. Uh, Deborah runs the Center for Priscillian Minds, and so we're going to talk about what does that word mean, and we'll talk about interpersonal neurobiology. How does that view what the self is and what mind is, and what are the implications of that for us as coaches? We'll talk about a trinocular approach that Deborah brings of mind, body, and relating uh, to her work. We'll talk about conversational intelligence and the call for coaches in our time. So we cover a lot. And just a few more words about Deborah. She's a PhD psychologist, has been a leader in the field of interpersonal neurobiology for over 15 years. And she teaches at universities. She's written numerous articles, speaks internationally, and works with progressive leaders in the field of healthcare, technology, education, and coaching. And so just before we dive in, just to say, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to join our global community of conscious coaches to hear about the things we create, which are not this podcast, you can head to coachesrising.com and scroll down. You'll find a sign up box, put your name in there. You'll also see the other cool things we've got on our website. So let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Deborah Pierce McCall. So Deborah, it's great to be with you today. I really enjoyed our little chat before we press the record button. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Joel, and I am delighted to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I think we've got a lot to talk about. So um, I'd love to actually begin by asking you uh, this word "presilient" that you have "presilient mind," and it's you know a big part of your work. And I just wondered a great place to start. What what is that for you? What does it mean? It's true. What is that? Well, first, I'll just say I, I have a love of words. And so a, I don't, over a decade ago, I came across this word and it was actually classed as archaic, meaning hardly used anymore. And the word is persilience. So persilience basically has two meanings. One means kind of extremely prominent, but the meaning that that I chose to go with persilient minds is to leap forward. So to be persilient brings to mind a little bit the word resilient. Resilient, we all think of as like bouncing back. And so persilient, it isn't exactly like being planful or proactive. It's actually realizing that change and challenge are part of life and opportunities to grow, whether it's the growth of our nervous systems through learning and neuroplasticity, whether it's the growth of our relationships or of our ability to communicate within them or the growth inside of ourselves. So for me, um, having a persilient mind means developing the qualities in ourselves uh, and in how we inhabit our lives, whatever they bring us, so that everything becomes um, a chance to transform, a chance to leap forward, not just bounce back. Right. Yeah, I love that word, you know, that because um, often we we kind of focus on fixing problems and um, you know, even that sense of being becoming resilient can have a, a feeling of like moving from something negative to something okay. But this is, yeah, that actually we can we can make leaps forward. So mm-hmm. nice choice. I, and I'll tell you very quickly, um, just a, a piece of my personal path that that helped me understand this. I have had a number of surgeries for a variety of reasons. The first one, I was 12, and it was very impactful experience in many ways, probably more uh, actually kind of interpersonally and in terms of 
uh, consciousness and awareness than physically. But by the time I was having, you know, let's say my fourth surgery, I realized that this is something you could go into, not only with that idea of recovery or resilience, or I'll get through this okay, but that I could actually create an experience, even though I couldn't predict what would happen. So that's why being planful wasn't exactly what I could do, but I could use what I already knew and I could be prepared to relate to my medical team in ways that supported me well, that I could prime or prepare myself for how I was gonna show up. And that I could even, and this gets a little more complicated, but as I knew some of the research about kind of what happens in the brain and anesthesia and things, that I could even prime my nervous system to have a healing or growthful experience in the surgery. So I think that's one example, but in any experience that we have in life, right? I, I really am not fond of the kind of, um, you know, just positive things like everything is, you know, an opportunity or, you know, it, it's, I don't mean to be uh, kind of Pollyanna like that. Life can be incredibly hard and challenging. So to be persilient, really just means um, taking those waves as they come. And, you know, as John Kabat-Zinn once said, um, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn how to surf. Right. Yeah, I, um, I, I find that inspiring, actually. And I, I guess it leads me to ask then, do you have a kind of general um, ethos or philosophy behind the the transformational work you do with people um i know you're trained you're, you're you've got a, a kind of a lot of expertise in interpersonal neurobiology and conversational intelligence and um, i wonder yeah like what lenses you bring to bear upon helping people make transformation mm -hmm. well and i i bring what i would say if i had to use kind of um a different way of looking at our lenses, I bring what we could call a trinocular lens, right? A binocular lens, how we use, you know, we have two eyes and we put that together and we get three dimensions. The most my mind could grasp was a trinocular. And for me, this has actually been a very, very long quest. I wrote my first paper on the mind when I was 12 years old. Really? And that's that's really when I was in college. I, you know, had the opportunity to take all kinds of like, I took a class from someone who, who was one of the first researchers of play. Um, and I, you know, took a class with someone that was called communication as social interaction. And I was able to just take all of this from psychology and sociology and biology and things that were happening in the 70s and start seeing how they all connected. And the reason I could do that was systems theory. And I think in my lifetime, systems theory has profoundly altered uh, that it really has become a new paradigm in worldview. It's allowed the kind of multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary work that we're seeing all over the place. So um, my lens, trinocular, as big as I can get it, is basically um, mind, body, and relating. And my own path kept being kind of attempts to put those pieces together. I went from being pre-med to being like a psych major to being, I even, I ended up getting one degree in something called human ecology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, although I, I, I am officially a psychologist, right? And, and it is because the experience of being a human, right? Resides on all those levels. So the way I bring all that together, right? Because we all know about, you know, being eclectic. Right. But if I'm working as a coach and I'm like, oh, here's something that does, uh, you know, helps people uh, get clear goals. And here's something that helps people 
figure out how to talk in less power um, over kinds of ways. Uh, but if you don't have a frame, you, you kind of just, right? you might do good work, but you, you're just guessing. And I won't say that maybe to some extent we're all guessing, <laughs> but the framework, right? That really keeps me uh, both excited about new information and solid in the work I do is interpersonal neurobiology. But I think of that as systems 3.0. It's saying our, you know, our mind is a system that's kind of emerging from this incredible mechanism of our bodies and nervous systems and our relational um, environment that, right, we know, frankly, if a human is born with no relationship, they don't survive. So that relational environment even comes before our own subjective experience of mind. So if I can put all those together, mind, brain, and relationship, and I can start to see how those are three levels of kind of the same things, what starts to happen um, is a lot of the science and practical applications of the science fall into place. So I've, I've worked with this interpersonal neurobiology frame or systems 3.0 frame with coaches, with leaders, with therapists, with physicians, with attorneys, with, uh, you know, it's kind of no matter what relational work you do or even just because you're a human in relationship, <clears throat> understanding some of the most illuminating science findings, say about how the nervous system works, help us not only be better to ourselves, right? But be much better to each other. Right. Um, there's a lot in what you just said. And um, I'd love to go to these illuminating findings and the application. But I think first I want to um, tease apart what you just said about mind is an emergent property of of our uh, kind of whole, you know, system, our bodies and the environment, because I, I think that's quite a profound thing to say. Yeah, like you know, it could be easy to skate over that statement, but um, that's true. Just, and so, yeah. so let me just say too, I'll give a, a shout out to the the um, three folks who really started this kind of interpersonal neurobiology frame. Uh, yeah. Dan Siegel, Lou Casalino, and Alan Shore. And they did this back in the 90s. And, um, and I think that, that the, um, the unique part of this is that when we simply look at the science of how relational human beings are, Right, you know, going back to that infant who happens to be conveniently born with a uh, focus for vision that is how far away the human caregiver's face is going to be when they're holding that infant. Right, like how amazing is that? And that's, of course, it's not a coincidence. It's because relationship is what we swim in, it's what we live in. But because of that, right, it's not something we see. And in many of our cultures and societies now, it's not something that we're brought up to notice or to even have good words for, let alone to be able to actually understand, influence and work with. So once we take that relationality piece, then we start to realize, okay, so if our bodies and our nervous systems are developing relationship, the idea that a mind, uh, and there are certainly still scientists who are gonna take this stance that the mind is the brain, right? But even, I think just a couple weeks ago, 
I was reading a new uh, report of some new research on one of my favorite parts of the nervous system, the vagus nerve. And they were talking about um, these fine nerve fibers that they couldn't really see before. And this particular nerve um, enervates, goes to all kinds of places, communicates, gut and brain communicate, heart and brain communicate, places of the face and all kinds of communication and social engagement parts of us are related to this vagal system. And in this new research, right, one of the neuroscientists was saying, uh, I believe he was an addiction researcher. I never thought of addiction having anything to do below the neck before. Really? <laughs> but really, right? Because this is, this is how we're taught intellectually, right? We, we, we chop things up. So right. even if we think about, right, one of the things that we get from systems theory and work a lot with in interpersonal neurobiology, and I work with coaches and organizations all the time with this, is the idea of integration that there's always this differentiation happening, but we always are also connected. So we could look at what I just said, like in academia, right? They chopped us up. They chopped our bodies up in medicine, so to speak. And it, there's so much to know that everyone has to have a differentiated specialty. And we also need to have a language, right? To be connecting, to be co-creating, to mm. be understanding these things in tandem. And so with the little bit of science knowledge that I have, right, my little piece of it is, how can I take some of this stuff and really help us understand more about being human together? Right. And so the mind, right, my mind couldn't possibly be just in my brain, even if you want to think about all the information we get from other people. But the other thing we know, again, just simple science is um, co-regulation, right? In fact, some of the neuroscientists whose work I really like to follow are moving into what one of them calls two-brain neuroscience, because they're saying we're so social that neuroscience findings that are just one person in an MRI alone really aren't that valid about how we function. That, that that's uh, incredible yeah um it, it could just to kind of zoom out a bit it, it has me think about the, the place we find ourselves in in the world uh, particularly in the west where it feels like we've emphasized this um individualistic um you know um kind of newtonian um worldview and that this whole sort of, um, which has led to us feeling like we're very separate and that, yeah, I mean, I'm encapsulated inside my body and it seems a kind of impoverished uh, worldview in some sense, often emphasizing the, the, the thinking as well, you know? And so there's these, as you talk, I hear about these almost like modes of knowing or perceiving that we could begin to open to and, and, and work with uh, to begin to then create more um, integration, as you said, and, and well-being and, and creativity, um, new kinds of collaboration by, by kind of expanding our sense of who we are in the world, you know? And so, because I think a lot of people would, you know, me included, I've just been so ingrained in that, you know, that sense of individualism and, and like, um, yeah, I'm, um, I am just this solid, solid entity inside my body. I'm not, you know, like made uh, my, my, like, cause you're saying like, I, it sounds like literally my identity is made of relationship, you know, and that, how could that, how could you locate that in the, you know, explicitly in the body? Mm -hmm. I don't know mm -hmm. if all that brings up anything for you or. Right. Well, here's just, I mean, something really simple, uh, that I think shows this to, to folks is, um, so, you know, they have a term called uh, emotional contagion, which is kind of a, a form of 
co-regulation that can be pleasant if it's a happy emotion, like what can happen at a great music event, right? Or it could be very unpleasant if it's like the person who comes into the office in a really foul state of mind and mood and manages to uh, kind of share that with everybody else. Um, so we, I mean, we know this. A uh, really simple example is to notice, and coaches can absolutely notice this, that when we're in sync in conversation, it's not uncommon. Uh, and some systems use this intentionally, of course, but it just happens naturally that people uh, mirror each other, right? That I, you know, I'm scratching my forehead and then, oh, the person I'm talking to is scratching their forehead. Uh, and we know a bit about potentially there's mirror neurons in our nervous systems that are actually kind of creating a little bit of the state of the other person or what we think their intentions are uh, below the level of our consciousness. But because of these kinds of things, right, the idea that I can be just this entity, another thing would be just I would challenge anybody to see how long in a day do you go without bringing other people into mind? Hmm. And the moment there's somebody else in your mind, your mind is in some way, not just in you, it is involving that relationship hmm. and the history and the memory and the experience of that other being. Right. And then maybe what does this mean in terms of the application then, you know, and you said there's some other illuminating insights uh, that we could weave in. I'd love to kind right. of, yeah, explore uh, what it all means practically when you work with people, how leaders or coaches can be empowered. Yeah. Well, I think one thing it means is that we are more connected and more in relationship than we're truly aware of. And so, for example, um, and I think coaches have actually learned, uh, many have learned this, but if I think about some of those qualities, right, of being persilient, um, I like many folks in the, in the interpersonal neurobiology or IPNB world, I like acronyms, um, but I'll just share like a little bit of prosilient. I think of um, priming and I think of relationality and I think of openness or um, to kind of optimizing what's going on. And so priming is really one of the most important things that we can do, right? When we're coaching people, if we are really serious about understanding that the state of my nervous system is absolutely going to impact in some way yours and yours could also be impacting mine, how do I carry myself? What presence how do I prime my presence? What do, what do I want to be embodying as a coach? And right, I know most coaches are so, um, you know, wanting to bring kind of compassion and connection and some kind of commitment to change, right? And so how do we call that up inside of ourselves? Um, this might seem really simple, but the contrast to just going from meeting to meeting to meeting and thinking only about, okay, what's, you know, what's on their agenda or what, taking even three minutes to sit and prime our own nervous systems can really change what was going to emerge. I think another example that comes to my mind when I say emerge is one of the things that has happened in coaching as has happened in therapy is there's kind of, um, you know, there's the human desire to know what to do. Tell me the steps, one, two, three. <laughs> and unfortunately in the world of therapy because of the uh, movement over the past couple decades for evidence-based um, practices, the practices that lend themselves to evidence or to research right, get um, prioritized. And so 
those often, because they've gone through research, have step one, step two, step three. But we, what we know, we all know this, when we're working live with ourselves and other human beings, there's, if, if we're truly in that living moment together, there's an emergence, right? There's something that's gonna happen and we, we can't plan that or predict that and we don't want to. If we come in with the plan, right, we can override that emergence. And again, I can go back to what I just mentioned from the big framework I carry, Systems 3.0, that systems, right, are always either kind of moving toward a more chaotic state, more differentiation, or they're moving toward a more connected state. But if they get overconnected, that gets like really rigid and structured. And so whether we're coaching or we're leading or we're just living our own lives, there's something about being in this kind of responsive, emergent, flowing state, right? Where we're, we're kind of maybe getting a little structured, maybe getting a little chaotic, mm. but we're not getting stuck in either of those. We're always getting back into the flow. That, although it's very kind of abstract, when I work mm -hmm. with folks who work with change, what I'm helping them to do is to know that state and to trust it in themselves. Because it is a little scary. I don't have, I don't have step three yet. I don't know what step three is. We're going to find out together, right? Um, but the best, the best human inventions, experiences, connections, come out of that they come out of being in that state how, how do you help people to you know to tune into that state well i think that is you know what what um is actually our natural state so i think helping it's it's helping people reclaim something that they already have and I believe that we have a few kind of uh, ways that we've created developmental paths that miss strengthening some of the important ways that we learn to be in that creative kind of place with each other. Um, uh, another term that that uh, some colleagues and I came up with some years ago is weevolution. That, you know, we're, we may be still having some physical evolution as a species, but it's very slow. But we are having the most rapid kind of psychological and social evolution ever. And I think of it as weevolution. Like we, we really, this we, we have got to figure out how to really inhabit that relational reality. You know, whether it's, whether it's um, the fact that I will struggle, uh, my city as many has a lot of houseless people. And although I cannot solve the problem, I also will feel distress every time I see these people and I will choose to feel distress because I do not want to feel nothing. That seems horrible to me. But to feel distress means I let myself feel connected to them, right? Like I don't other them. I realize that that could happen to me or to other people with just the differing set of birth circumstances, life circumstances, some random accident that can happen to people, right? And so all of that for me is part of weevolution because it counters what you were saying. Like, you know, you are Joel bounded in this body by the skin, making choices of your own free will and whatever happens, you made it happen, you know? Or if it's not good, then you made it happen. <laughs> right bad on you right and it's just so not true um we are we are all so much more connected 
then we have allowed ourselves to, to really um, experience, honor, and make use of in our modern cultures. If anything, some of what we do is we make misuse of it. Mm. Some of the uh, power of what could happen with revolution has, I think, been usurped a bit by, uh, dare I say, by capitalism and by other um, economic uh, or entertainment kind of um, courses that, that uh, we can see ways that we have other kinds of, you know, real strong we's that can emerge. But again, these things, just like neuroplasticity, can be a positive thing or it can be mm. a not, not a good thing, right? We can build these connections in ways that are beautiful and make our businesses better and more humane, or we can build them in ways that can be very, very harmful to people. Yeah, I'm just thinking now of just the way that social media has tended to kind of polarize people and, you know, by incremental degree, shift people's views of other people and how that's contagious, you know, thinking about the vagus nerve and, um, you know, how, like, I think a lot, a lot more people now are kind of in that sympathetic state or the, is it the dorsal, you know, shut down kind of state and um that's there's that's something spreading around and but you know equally i think this is why i find what you talk about so profound and and things like polyvagal theory so profound is because the opposite is also true that if we were able to you know leverage this positively and and have um uh you know this spread through the world and um you know, then, and it could be quite a, a powerful change. And I just want to, you know, I, I mean, I'm so pleased about what you brought up about the priming and the emergence, because I'm right with you on that. I think this is like um, an emerging edge of coaching. I would even say like, it's now becoming more mainstream, but um, we've even created a program on it to stuff you talk about. Cause I think for me, this is, this is um, where really, true transformation occurs when we're able to, um, you know, yes, our, our own state, our own um, beingness as a coach is so potent when coming together with our clients. And if, if we've done that work to be able to, to be in that place of emergence, you know, attuned to that, because it's really like, a, you know, you can be like a connoisseur of that emergence and, and, and kind of hold space and be attuned in a way that allows it to keep on happening. And so dropping the change agenda, for example, or having that three-step process is one of the things that can really kill that. And I think, I think so I'm so pleased you name it, because I think this is one of the qualities, not just for coaches in our times, but, but for leaders, but for all people, because we've, we've lost that ability to, to be in the experiential intensity of emergence. I, I, th I think then there's communities growing up now who are, intentionally practicing that being in together in kind of interpersonal meditation. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and other ways, I think there's really exciting things happening. Um, when I was, uh, I, I was at one point an executive for a healthcare uh, corporation uh, right around the time that the coaching uh, industry was starting and I knew that this was going to be so uh, potentially positive and change oriented for the world of work because what I had discovered becoming an executive, well, two things that really struck me. One was it was all about relationships. Uh, two was systems theory was totally my guide, right? And three, being an executive was a whole lot easier than being on the front lines doing, uh, this was right healthcare, so doing uh, mental health and psychiatric care all day. And 
I realized that that, for example, is something that a lot of leaders forget, <laughs> right? And uh, I don't know how we created this where, you know, where there are certain leaders making gazillions more money as though their hour of work is that much harder than someone else's hour of work. Uh, so I didn't, I, I didn't understand that. Um, but what I did know was, right, and I've known it ever since, is that, that coaches are bringing um, information about really uh, about humanity into our workplaces. And they do it in all kinds of very concrete, important ways. I think what matters most if we want to kind of keep the big picture in mind is to just simply have, have a way that, that we let ourselves think about what we're doing with any particular client and, and just think a bit about, well, what is the relational piece of this? What is the nervous system development piece of this? Um, you mentioned polyvagal as I did and um, shout out to Steve Porges who created that. And, um, I was, I was really lucky, um, a while ago when I, um, had first helped start this interpersonal neurobiology program here in Portland, uh, Steve and his life partner, Sue Carter came and did a full day workshop that I did a wraparound class with and their work both of them, their work has been uh, something I have tried to find ways to share with people ever since. Uh, both of them having really looked at kind of mammal and obviously human level biology of love and connection. Mm -hmm. So I think just something really practical right now for all of us, right? If you think about that vagal system, um, what we know is most of us have been out of practice at being in face-to-face -face social engagement. So even though we're human creatures who are built for this, our nervous systems are a little rusty at it. And so what do we do to, again, to prime ourselves? And I think there's, there's clear things that we can do. I actually have kind of a translation of polyvagal theory into uh, practical stuff, but uh, let me just pull a piece from that and say, what we know from polyvagal, right, is there is a state in our nervous systems where we're, we're at our best, where we're, everything is like flowing and turned on in all the ways that support us really being in relationship and being connected with each other. And how do we invite that state before we go to you know, the first event in a while where we're seeing somebody? How do, we, how do we really respect that there's probably some limits to that state, right? And how do we maybe even find some ways to talk about it and make it relational with the other people? And by doing all of those things, we prolong our capacity to be in that state of engagement and maybe we want to really know, okay, where do, where do we go when we drop out of it? Some people do go into that more sympathetic arousal, like you said, kind of, you know, I got to get out of here. I've had enough, or um, I just start and get really irritated with these people now. Um, some people skip through that really fast and they just go into that kind of uh, over parasympathetic withdrawal place. So knowing what we do and then being really kind to ourselves to listen and, mm -hmm. and encouraging other people to do the same, right? So when I'm working uh, with a company as I am right now, that's looking at who's going back to work, how are they gonna do that? What's the hybrid, right? Being able to not just see this as a set of policies, but to see this as a bunch of relating humans with nervous systems who can use their minds and their communication and conversations to work through all of this. And then you might say, to what end, Deborah? I don't know. I'm in it with them. It's an emergent solution. <laughs> but mm -hmm. we will find, right, the best path through 
by being in those processes, minding our nervous systems, being in some kind of safe connection and community and relationship with each other, right? These are, and then being open, being open to, again, what I think of as optimizing the situation, which is what invites even in our brains and bodies that growth of neuroplasticity. So I, I kind of hear like a, a pathway there, you know, that you're helping people um, to recognize the important of, importance of relationships and their nervous systems to in some way be able to make a, to make a shift into that socially engaged place. And then, you know, um, like bringing in that, that kind of um, capacity for emergence from that place and then, you know, the creativity will come through or the solution or the, the collaboration will come through. Um, so does that sound about right? Like that, that's kind of like, you know, I don't want to start breaking your work down into three steps, but at the same time, <laughs> there's like, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a pathway there and yeah, wonder. Well, and in a way, right, when I'm saying that kind of, you know, PRO, right, it is, it's like priming with presence. Um, you know, the relationality piece and then that kind of orienting toward what is what you can optimize in any situation. And right. you're right. These are, they, they are, there's the difference is right. There's a difference between um, prescriptive steps or content steps. Right. We can even get into kind of hemispheric differences in information processing, but I won't go there now, but right. And having that, you know, that more general understanding, um, I think of it like uh, if we take the metaphor of the river, right? That we're going down a river and we have these banks of chaos and, uh, rigidity and we want to kind of stay in the middle think about like if it's an actual river right we want to have a solid raft we want to have a communication system with the people we're in the raft in mm -hmm. but then we're going to be figuring it out as we go along because we don't know how much has it rained did a new log fall somewhere even if we had known those rapids last month they could be completely different this month right right and so it is it's like having having the the system in place that can continue to emerge and respond and in essence as i say that what i think about is it's really that that place where all of us are able to you know be in our own mind but also be in that kind of connected mind space. Mm -hmm. Again, I use these abstract words, but if we go practical and I say to you, like, you know, when's a time you could remember in the last five years of your life where you had an experience where you just felt so welcomed? Mm. And people, right, we, we know these things, we get it. We just don't always let ourselves um, live in this way, let alone live in this way in our in our workplaces. Right. And then do you think that it's, so I, I hear that you're in a way, you're like helping the workplace to create a culture that would allow this to happen more easily, more regularly. And um, do you think then it's a question of, um, over time, people become more and more primed to be in that that way with each other, to be in that socially engaged way? Or is it is it more about that you're training people in the moment to be able to make a shift back if they find themselves, you know, um, becoming more isolated, um, you know, more reactive? And maybe both is true, but I, I wonder like how you see that like journey playing out over time. I, I think you already knew, right? Because many of my answers start with both and, or <laughs> right. it depends. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, yes. 
I think what I get to see might depend on who, who I'm getting to talk with. Um, but, you know, if it's a, a training workshop or a classroom environment, you know, you can see how uh, each individual person is getting their own development and their own learning because whatever we learn new is going to be in a sense unique you know we all think we're learning the same thing well of course we can't be because the way we learn is to take new information and connect it and so unless we've had exactly the same life which of course we haven't my connections are going to be different than yours right so i think it's always that it's the individual and it's the organization or the team or the community. Um, when I'm working with a leader, there's, you know, first of all, I just want to say I was I was struck. You have a line in one of your online descriptions that just spoke to me. Uh, I think it was uh, one of your passions is awakening the leader in all of us. Mm, right. And I very much believe that um, that leading, again, is something we've like chopped up and, and mistakenly given to certain roles or personality types when the truth is that everybody is a leader in some way of some things at some times. And for all of us, knowing how to both be in that place to lead and also knowing how to be in a more receiving place and be led is important for everybody. So um, I think I might have actually lost track at this point of what I started to answer. Well, uh, yeah, no, no it's, uh, we were talking about, I was asking about, um, you know, the individual change. and the group. Yes. Yeah, so. And, yeah. It, and so I think it is always that, that both change. And so, you know, I'm yeah. just, I'll just think of, for a moment, let me reflect on a current um, coaching situation. And I would say, um, you know, like most, like, yes, it, what always seems to happen is that the changes are on every level. And again, maybe that goes with that trinocular view of things, right? So if you're working with an individual and things are shifting for them, things are also going to shift for everyone they're in relationship with. Mm. And when I work with, let's say, some of these ideas or with conversational intelligence, which for me is a um, like a, a fleshed out model with more practical exercises and, and ways of talking about things that very much fits with all of the science or a kind of conceptual perspectives I'm speaking to. Um, but when that happens, when conversational intelligence is introduced to a company, usually, well, usually people take it home, first of all, because it's impactful for them personally, not just in their work. And that's beautiful to see. And second, they want to invite everyone else in the workplace into this way of being able to be in conversation with each other. So I think when people start to, to get that sense of what is it like to, to live in this different way, to be a bit more comfortable with the oddities of being in a body and having a nervous system and the things we all have in common because of that, right, to be able to openly, for example, in a work meeting, to be able to openly say, um, boy, I'm starting to get overwhelmed by this and not have that be seen as a weakness, but merely a part of being a human. And thank mm -hmm. you very much for letting us know so that we can either slow down or take a break or just know that this person will be less involved, whatever it might be, right? But it it profoundly changes communities when people are able to um, to just be whole people together. Because you mentioned conversational intelligence, and perhaps it's worth 
naming like the the general principle of what what that is you know um yeah sure um conversational intelligence that term and the whole uh kind of way of working with folks was developed by uh judith e glazer who unfortunately uh died a few years ago and before she died uh this methodology had gotten quite well known. And so it has continued to be of great interest. Um, a lot of coaches have looked at this. There's corporations that use it. Uh, people are using this in all kinds of different ways, but basically um, it's a multidisciplinary way of saying, okay, what's a great tool for people to work with themselves and others? How about conversation? <laughs> it's this really cool, unique thing that humans figured out a while ago. Um, and it's our, probably our most powerful tool, right? For impacting each other, our communities, and even ourselves, because people talk to themselves all the time. So conversational intelligence kind of takes neuroscience, um, takes human development, and takes kind of, again, our capacity to truly be creative and authentic and um, present with each other. And it just says, well, what does that look like? Like, how can we actually use this tool of conversation to help people? So one really quick teeny example is so people would learn a technique called double clicking you know how you can like double click on a computer file and it opens up further mm -hmm. double clicking is just to say you know when someone says um i really don't think i can get this done by friday you could just accept that or you could double click and you can say, well, you know, well, what, what are you thinking having it done looks like, right? Mm -hmm. And then you might find out that their version of done was way beyond what needed to be done by Friday. And just something that simple, right? But we, we need um, methods and tools, right? For figuring out, again, how do I practically show up and do these things? And so conversational intelligence has been one of the more powerful methods. I would just say on the level of methods though, again, I think it's so important for coaches. Um, sometimes when I've had a chance, I'll, I'll actually work through with coaches that kind of trinocular or triangle of mind and brain body and relationship and what theories or models of change um, are you bringing that address or enter where in that mm. triangle? And how do you maybe make sure, you know, just have clarity. Some people may have a real passion and strength for one point on that triangle. And that's what they do in their work and do it beautifully, right? Other people might be trying to work on all of the triangle. And then they really need to have a way that they're giving themselves the clarity. So for me, right, I use conversational intelligence. I use um, a model that I, I see coming on strong for coaches is internal family systems, mm, right? Yeah. Um, so again, for me, it's like we live in a world where to get ideas across, we have brands and we do this thing where we kind of differentiate a model and we sell things. But if you take something like what I love, internal family systems. There's been other versions. There's inner community, way back to Virginia Satir, she kind of differentiated parts, Gestalt, they did parts. What matters, right? What we know is we have experiences inside ourselves of multiplicity. Mm. And we also experience ourselves as a kind of singular entity, I'm me right? But part of me feels this way and part of me feels that way. So what matters is that coaches have a coherent theory about how they work with the multiplicity of their clients, 
it doesn't matter what theory or method or concept it is, as long as it's based on something solid and that it works. Right. And that they have ways that they're checking to see if it's working. Right. So again, for me, it's like um, conversational intelligence as a model and a theory. It, it's beautiful. And I, I'm very fond of it. There's courses in it that people can go creating the Institute. And what I think is most important for coaches is that you really think through, okay, what is the influence leverage and entry into the human experience of the models that you work with? How do more than one models, right? If you got to this training and that training, how do those fit together? And to really know that if you have that frame that's connecting mind, brain, connecting mind and relating, connecting how people are in conversation to what's happening in the co-regulation of nervous systems, your work is going to be that much more impactful. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that, that, that kind of perspective you're offering because um, as, the, as the coaching field matures, uh, you know, I've been reflecting on this a bit myself, you know, like what, what's the call for coaches in these times? And I, I think I'll pose that to you in a moment, but um, I, I think in a way, like I would say you're speaking to my version of that, my answer of that question, which is that we are able to not just be beholden to one tool, but we're able to pick one up as needed as appropriate and know, know why we're doing so. And, and in doing so, we've kind of evolved our own learning as a coach you know we become more fluid and spacious we're actually able to um in some ways like mediate our own um theory of change you know rather than uh just just absorbing someone's training and then doing that you know so we become much more sophisticated practitioners and um hats off i love internal family systems too i think it's so effective in coaching um but yeah, I don't know what, what do you think about that? Like the call for coaches in these times is. So, well, I think of it as the call for uh, change makers in these times. And, you know, as someone who was also uh, involved for many years and still am in the world of psychotherapy, you know, there's been um, kind of an interesting relationship between coaching and therapy over the years. I think in this past year, with what has happened with the pandemic and the different uh, uh, awakenings that are becoming more broad in the world about injustice. And um, one of the things that's come out of this, right, is that um, the mental health systems are overwhelmed, right? Therapists are booked up. Uh, there's Clearly, there's always been need. I have always said that um, the healthiest people are the people getting help in this world because who doesn't need help in this world? Uh, it's hard to be a human. So um, I think that coaches are just beginning to, uh, to be recognized for the important role that they have. And to me, it's like, um, you know, like for some reason we took the growth and the change that therapy is and we put it in this one-to-one -one mostly, occasionally more, but this format in an office closed doors. Coaches started bringing versions, you know, not the same as therapy, but versions of how do humans change, how do people do their best work? And bringing that out into the workplace, or if we look at the broad field of coaching, right? There's people coaching in all kinds of formats. I think coaching is at a really important and critical stage where making sure, right, that people who are coaching do their own work and have that, mm. that solid frame. Um, but I, I believe that we, we could 
be entering a time where more and more of the kind of openness to that emergence, to the fact that we are constantly people in the process of connecting and growing, um, that there's going to be more and more opportunity and valuing of change makers, of people who actually know whether the coaches, whether the therapists, uh, whether it's you know the person leading the PTO at the local school, but people who are really um, not just there to be in a power position or to check a box, but truly wanting to improve how we are together. It's that simple. I mean, the fact that we've created such inhumane work conditions for so many human beings, when it is within our capacity to have work, if, if it can't all be meaningful, and it probably can't all be highly meaningful, at least it could be dignified, right? Mm -hmm. And we can do that. And so again, like all this loops around for me, right? Because, you know, kind of what I said before about my own experience with people who are houseless, right? As we become a connected world, um, there are many of us who cannot sit peacefully in a world of connection when we know that others are suffering. And that's okay. And I think in the, the years ahead, those kinds of things are where coaches are going to be leading some of the conversation and some of the change. Yeah, that's really inspiring. Yeah, like that, doing the work ourselves, not only so that we sensitize ourselves to others and who they are, um, but that we also um, access a kind of vibrancy, you know, and um, uh, an, an ability to, um, you know, transmit that commitment to change, you know, and to to the community and to relationship. And I think that's why it's so important that we we do this work, you know, this deep work. And then um, because all the time that we're doing that, I think we're making it more and more likely that we can start to create new ways of uh, being together in dignity, you know, in, in work and, and um, coming up with new creative, innovative solutions to the challenges we face. So, um, yeah, I'm really, really inspired to hear you talk about this because I, I feel very similar. We feel very similar at Coaches Rising that, you know, it's not a given and that I don't want coaches to become activists, you know, in a like, I'm going to change the world kind of way, but that each of us has a place and a part to play. And that yeah, we can do that with humility, but with um, a sense of being empowered. And, and um, I just feel very grateful that you're you're seeing the things you see and um, bringing the work you do into the world too, because I think mm. it has a ripple effect. I was I was raised in um, the Jewish tradition, and there's a concept from Judaism that speaks to what you're pointing at, it's tikkun olam. And it means uh, basically the world is broken and tikkun olam is finding my peace to repair in the broken world. And the idea that we each just have one piece, that's all that we can do. But if we all do the one piece. <laughs> that's, that's it, we got it then, haven't we? Yeah. Um, well, I feel like we've covered a lot of different topics and, um, you know, I think this has been a, a very inspiring conversation for me, Deborah. So I want to express my gratitude for the, the journey you've been on that's allowed you to, you know, accumulate this wisdom and to be able to share it. So, so a big thank you. Oh, thank you, Joel. I feel like we're just beginning. Um, <laughs> you know, I know I have a very associational mind. I and see so that. yeah. that's always so challenging for me. I, at this point, could take every conversation piece that you and I have had and sit with mm. you and talk about it for a whole nother chunk of time. It's just been lovely. 
Yeah, I feel I feel very similar actually. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of doors we could have gone down, gone through. Um, and I do want to um, ask you, where can we find out more about your work too? Yeah. Okay. Well, you can find out more about my personal work at persilientminds.com. And um, a few of the things that I'm involved in that you can learn more about if you wanted to. One would be I helped to start um, an international organization for people interested in interpersonal neurobiology called the Global Association for Interpersonal Neurobiology Studies. And that's open to anybody uh, who's applying this in, in any field. That's at mindgains.org. And I also do the work with conversational intelligence through the Creating We Institute. That's at creatingwe.com. And um, on my site, you can find a couple other things I'm involved with, like ecosystem intelligence or a fabulous um, multimodal goal attainment experience called Neurostrol. Uh, basically, what I love is just, as, as I've been saying, it's just kind of having a chance to play with like-minded people and call it work. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thanks so much. Yeah. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time.